One, two, three, four. In this podcast, you will be here. Knights of Vader, Knights of Vader. Include, but it's not later. Talk of Star Wars, not Reagans. We can't truly prepare for the junk that follows this song. But hey, we give it a try. So here's the Knights of Vader. Crystal Fox reports they are divided. For equal sequel, hate and love they fight I know that we are just musicians hired. And their time is up. So here's the Knights of Vader. Most impressive. A big thank you to N Inspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. It is July 17th, 2023. My name is Zach Weber, and joining me today is the Porteous with the Mortius, Chris. Hey, happy to be here. We we got a special one for you guys tonight. I'm not gonna spoil anything right now. Who else we got, Zach? And we have Grand Admiral Zanger making his live action appearance a couple days ago in a certain trailer. It was how well, it happened. <laughs> the eyes could be redder. <laughs> I, 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 there's a lot of things. <laughs> it, indeed. And we have someone without red eyes, Joe Yazo. Hello. Good to be back. But like Chris said, we have a very special guest on this episode of Knights of Vader. Chris, please introduce our guest. We are extremely privileged to be joined tonight by Craig Miller. Craig was the director of fan relations for Lucasfilm from 77 to 80, and he created and oversaw the original Star Wars fan club. And he wrote most of the content that was in Bantha Tracks for its first couple years, if I'm not mistaken. And that is basically the predecessor to Star Wars Insider for a for those of you who uh, weren't weren't around to see the glorious content in those those uh, early days, well, first of all, Craig, uh, how you doing tonight? What what's up? Well, I'm okay. I'm getting ready for San Diego Comic Con in a couple of days, and um, other than that, things are good. Awesome. So I, I guess, you know, I guess for most of our audience, uh, what they're going to what they're going to find real interesting is just give us a, if you could give us a little background on sort of how you got started with Lucasfilm. Well, um, I was uh, growing up, I was a comics fan. I was a science fiction fan. Um, I was involved with um which I guess you'd call it organized fandom conventions, the local science fiction club here in LA. It was the Los Angeles science fantasy society, which had originally been formed in 1934 and um, a steel meeting. Anyway, um, I was involved with all that. And I uh, happened to meet Charlie Lippincott, who was the head of marketing and licensing for what was called Star Wars Corporation back then. This was 1976. And Charlie knew that, I don't want to get into too much detail, but basically uh, Charlie needed someone who had a knowledge of fandom to help him with his plan to market Star Wars directly to science fiction comics fans. And I ended up being a consultant to... Star Wars Corporation, and then being brought in full time, um, where I stayed for the next three years doing the fan club and all kinds of publicity and merchandising and producing and stuff. When the when the fan club first got rolling, how are you? Uh, how are you guys trying to sort of categorize the audience? Like. Like, is it super wide or like, do you know who you're talking to? And like, how, how are you sort of trying to curate that content early on? Well, you know, we really didn't know, um, you know, there was no internet. There was, there, you know, there were computers, but they were, you know, those room size things that a dozen corporations in the country had. So it was really, you know, in the dark. Um, we figured... Most of the members of the official Star Wars fan club were probably younger um, kids and teens, just because that's who joined fan clubs. Um, but we knew just from people we knew and people I would see 
at science fiction conventions when I was doing uh, presentations and stuff for Star Wars and Empire, that it was much broader than that, you know, it wasn't all little kids. It wasn't all teenagers. There were people of all ages. But it was really, we were really in the dark. You know, we sent out flyers and ads and stuff, and people would send in their $5, and we would, you know, fulfill it the best we could. And my attitude in writing the newsletter and designing all the stuff we gave away when you joined the club was not that it was little kids. Um, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I was like, what would I want to get? What would I want to read about if I was getting the newsletter about Star Wars? Um, and so, and that was how we targeted it. It was basically... You know, I targeted the material to high school and college age, I guess. And obviously you could be older and still, but I mean, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I, you know, if, if anything, we were avoiding talking to little kids. It was all, um, how is this special, maybe this special effect done or an interview with George or Mark and Harrison and, you know, people like that, but on, on an adult level. That's uh that's interesting because it seems like from day one, like the star Wars fandom has almost looked through to lens uh, through a lens of this is how film production is done. It's always sort of been like, I, like I grew up with the nineties incarnation of the star Wars fan club. And even then it was all just about like visual, uh, they, you know, they dive deep into visual effects techniques and all that. And, uh, you know, you can't, can't quite see it in, in the, the shot, but just outside my office by the front door here, I have uh, the fan club poster of the Ralph McQuarrie art inside the X-Wing framed by my front door. And Craig's not uh, messing around here. The stuff the fan club was turning out for fans was really breathtaking. Like that poster is a extremely desired uh, object to this day. And you're talking unique Ralph McQuarrie art that fans wouldn't have seen everywhere in uh you know, I mean, it looks like it. It looks like it could have been done yesterday. Like the 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 resolution of it, how dynamic the image is. Like it's a breathtaking piece. Yeah, we we decided. Uh, you know, I wanted something special. If you joined the fan club, you were getting stuff as part of the membership kit that you couldn't get anywhere else. And um, Ralph was a great guy. I was very fortunate. I mean, Star Wars was fortunate to have Ralph, but um, I was fortunate to be able to work with Ralph, get to know him. I actually designed that first fan club poster of the X-Wing in the trench, um, jumping out of the uh, paint out of the poster, and Ralph painted it, and it's terrific. And it was, you know, you could only get it by joining the fan club. And that was the kind of stuff we wanted to do. Yeah, we'll definitely share an image of that in the in the Facebook group and on social media when we post this. But um, you know, if you haven't seen that, if you haven't seen that art, it's really something else. Um, Zinger, Zach, Joe, uh, you got any questions you want to take away with? I I, I got what I want to start with, and I, and I want to put you on the spot, Mister Miller, if that's okay. Who shot first? <laughs> I don't think that's really a question, is it? You know, I I, I, I gotta it's ask it. I know the, the the fans have to know where you are on this. Well, there's no question that Han shot first. I mean, that is the correct answer. That is the correct answer, right, Zach? Of course, of course. No, like I said, the fact they're saying disqualifying the question is the correct. It's like one of those ones where, like, you hear about in the totalitarian totalitarian country. It's like I refuse the exam. You passed. Yeah. It's that level of yeah. <laughs> Hey, um, I just wanted to set, set 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 the ground so we know what kind of fan we are dealing with here. So so yeah. it is definitely a pleasure to have you on, and great. <laughs> I, I wanted to get that answer, but um, something I do want to ask is: you were there at like the ground level, which sadly for the other ones of us on this podcast, we've experienced the sequel and prequel trilogies, but not the original ones in theaters and every time. If if you don't mind, 
Walk me through what it was like and what went through your head the first time you saw Star Wars. Well, the first time I saw Star Wars was at a screening room at 20th Century Fox sometime in early May of 1977. So a few weeks before the film came out. Um, And again, growing up as a science fiction fan, you know, the movie started, we get the crawl. Okay. I'd seen movie serials. I was familiar with them. That was, I thought that was fun. And then we get the opening, you know, um, excuse me. Um, we get the opening, the, the little ship comes in, it's a cool looking ship. It goes by the star destroyer comes on and comes on and gets bigger and bigger and is in the frame and fills the frame and keeps going and going yeah. and going. And in my head, I was sold. That was it. I mean, I'd read the script. I knew what the movie was going to be like. But that shot, that's it. I'm in. You got me. Um, you know, as a science fiction fan, that's, the, that's what I always wanted to see. Awesome. And Richard Edlund said, um, I heard this from him later, it was really the first shot they did for the movie, and he knew that this shot was going to sell the movie. This shot worked, the movie worked. If this shot didn't work visually, they would lose the audience. It had to be right, And, and it was. It just was. Awesome. I, I I don't want to use up all the good questions, so I want well, to spread it around. I, I have an interesting one, and this is what anybody on the podcast can tell you, Greg, that my background's in marketing, and one of my biggest frustrations with contemporary Star Wars is the marketing or lack thereof. And you had a really good point that I want to just touch upon, is that you didn't talk down to your audience. Yeah. And that's something where, and obviously going back to Charlie Lippincott and this, the really just novel approach to marketing in the mid to late seventies, that was, I don't want to say unprecedented, but definitely just never commenced to that extent. Oh, it was, it was, it was unprecedented. No one had ever done that. Everyone thought it was crazy. Now everyone does it. Star Wars. And I give full credit to Charlie on this. Um, He came up with new ways to, you know, that now seem obvious to market movies. Um, You know, going out and selling licensing so that Star Wars would be everywhere by the time the movie came out. That was unheard of as well. Um, That was, you know... um, it was something that has become the norm. Although I will say, I was just having this conversation with uh, a friend a couple days ago. I, I feel like I need to go back as a, a marketing consultant because the marketing of movies today is mostly terrible. It's mostly lazy. It's mostly on the nose. You know, um, they can't figure out what they're selling. The Barbie movie has had the best marketing campaign (laughs) in 20 years. You know, people who would have no interest in that movie want to go see Barbie because it just seems like it's fun. It seems like it's cool. And no one's quite sure what it's going to be about or what it's going to be like. But everyone thinks they'll have a good time. You know, I hated the marketing on the new Indiana Jones movie. What were they selling? Hey, remember Indiana Jones? You used to like him. You'll see him old and you'll see him young. Will we tell you anything about what the movie's about? No. No. Do you know anyone else who's in the movie? Well, maybe Phoebe uh, Waller-Bridge, you'll you'll see her, but you don't know what she's doing. Um, What can you tell me about that movie from any of the trailers or any of the ads? Basically nothing. It's no surprise it didn't do as well as they'd hoped. It's not doing as terrible as they're making out, but it's not doing the numbers it should have. And I put that down to thoughtless marketing. Hmm. Well, that's my thing is that, like you said, the 
the lessons of just oversaturation of licensing and all that, yet your aspect of it has kind of, again, just looking at solely under the contemporary Disney Lucasfilm era, there's no such, outside of celebrations, there really isn't much fan outreach anymore. Like even about eight years ago, I used to have Rebels Rewind or Rebels Recon, where after every episode of Star Wars Rebels, they would sit there, have that thing. And it was more token appeasement because they had like a couple questions from the fans on social media. Is there, enlighten us, is there a reason why these studios don't feel that that core aspect of it is important anymore? I, you know, I can't tell you. I've been out of the movie marketing business for quite a while. Um, I've been, you know, writing, um, developing animation for television. Um, So I'm not really connected to that world anymore, except, you know, to a small extent. But I, you know, I think a lot of it is just laziness. I think a lot of it is people who, it has to be people who don't know what they're doing. I, I, I can't put it any other way just because how could you miss these bets? How can you miss, you know, the obvious? Um, Indiana Jones is about excitement. It's about adventure. It is the action adventure movie other than, you know, oh, he rides a horse in the subway. Uh, what action did we see? You know, um, it, it, and, I, and then it's the same, I think, with so many movies. The marketing is just like, do, do, had they ever even watched the movie? I, I'm, I'm just guessing, you know, uh, it's an educated guess from the knowledge of marketing, but I don't know. <laughs> how they are coming to the decisions they're making today. That's, it's a good point, just not to keep harping on poor Indiana Jones 5, but I think it's what you mentioned too when um, Zenger asked the first time you watched Star Wars. You were there like before it hit the ground for the mass audiences. It gave you that ability as the marketer to get a feel as to what you would be promoting. And that's probably a lot too, is just the marketing department's probably just, they get bits and like, okay, this is sanctioned clips you're allowed to use. Try to sell the product based on 30 shots. Good luck. And that's where I think I think there's that element is that they're probably not giving – the people who do care there, they're probably being dealt a less than ideal hand. Yeah. I, you know, I can't, I can't tell you because I'm not there. So I don't know if that's the case. Um, you know, sometimes you get – producers or directors who have their own ideas of how things should be done. Um, you know, when I was, when I was doing Excalibur for Warner brothers as a consultant, um, there's a group called the society for creative anachronism that's been around since the sixties, still around guy, men and women who dress up in basically as knights. they have tournaments they do all kinds of things. I wanted to do, in key cities, we would schedule tournaments and press events with the creative anachronists, type of creative anachronist members, and just, you know, get people, get the press excited about medieval. And John Borman said to me, oh, I don't know, it sounds an awful lot like a publicity stunt. And I said, well, John, it is a publicity stunt. And he said, no, no, that we, we couldn't do that because he wanted something more that, – that was too crass. He didn't want something like that for his movie. So, you know, sometimes from the marketing side, you're dealing with that. Now, he's a great director. But, um, you know, and I'm not saying that was the most brilliant marketing move in the world, but it would have helped us sell the movie, would have helped us do something. I was able to do things like the studio was selling that particular movie as a men's action. So they were marketing it to college age guys, college age males. That was the target audience. I got Bride Magazine, which was the biggest magazine in the bridal marketplace at the time, very, very large circulation. I got them to run like a six-page color pictorial on the wedding of Arthur and Guinevere. 
doesn't affect the targeting of the college age males, but it says to women, at least the ones reading Bride magazine, but that's a whole gamut of, you know, girls who want to be brides someday, women who were engaged in planning weddings, mothers of the brides, aunts of the brides, grandmothers of the brides, all that kind of stuff. It says to them, hey, there's something in this movie for me. You know, it's expanding the footprint. I don't know if marketing is really this where you wanted to go today with this discussion, but, um, but you know, it's expanding your footprint. It's telling people there's who aren't your immediate obvi ob obvious audience that there's something in the movie for them. And mostly they don't do anything like that today because it isn't easy. It requires thinking. Okay, I, I do have something to get us back on to Star Wars and okay. with your marketing. Uh, this 1-800 number hotline uh, that you did. I, yeah. I, I want to know more about this because this was done. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, I, I, you know, I, I want you to explain because I feel like I'm not going to do it justice. But um, I've been watching stuff on like Lost Media and I feel like this was Lost Media for a long time. Oh, yeah. But if I'm correct, you're the one that was able to bring it back into the world again. Yeah. So tell us more about this 1-800 number you could call. Okay. Well, I talk about this at some length in my book, Star Wars Memories, he said, getting a plug in there. Plug, plug, plug. Back in 1979, 800 numbers were relatively new. You could call free from anywhere in the United States. Answering machines were relatively new. They, um, and, you know, if you called a movie theater, and I assume this was everywhere in the country, it was certainly in L.A., if you called a movie theater, you would get a recording that said, you know, we're, we're showing this movie at this time and that time and the other time. And if it was a multiplex, there weren't as many multiplexes then, but if it was, it would say in theater one, we're showing this and theater two. And I thought, you know, why don't we do messages from the characters talking about the movie? It's, it's cheap. You know, we could spread it by word of mouth. We don't have to do any expensive advertising. And um, I talked to George and I talked to, by then, Charlie was gone, and Sid Gannis was the head of our – he was vice president of marketing for Lucasfilm. <clears throat> Everyone approved it, and so I wrote five messages, C-3PO, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, and Darth Vader. Mm -hmm. And we recorded them. Um Except for Harrison, we recorded them when the actors came in for their looping session. Harrison had already finished looping by the time we came up with this. So I hired uh, a friend of mine was a big name recording guy, sound guy. So this was actually well below his uh, pay grade, but he was a friend of mine and he was a Star Wars fan. So he got out his Nagra and we went up to Harrison's house and recorded Harrison doing his message. And we set this up. And uh, again, I'll try to make this short, but we, uh, I, you gotta forgive me. I don't. I don't do short answers. Uh, no, no, no. It's no problem. I, I, I like hearing the breakdown and everything. But back then, the phone system was mechanical. Hmm. It wasn't computerized the way it is now. All the switching equipment was mechanical. So, if you wanted a specific number, you had to be where that number was. And we wanted the phone number eight hundred to start with, so it was free. Five two one one nine eight zero, May twenty first, nineteen eighty. The date Empire was opening. That was in Illinois. Five two one was in Illinois. So we made a deal with a phone system company in Illinois. Set up these calls, and then I was announcing it at science fiction conventions when I was going out doing Empire Strikes Back promos. 
and Starlog ran like a half-page article about it. And we opened, I think we started in January. And again, wasn't computerized. Basically, there were tape recorders, fancy tape recorders that linked to telephones. So the first month, January, you got a message from C-3PO. And in February, I think you got Luke Skywalker, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it was a different message each month. And, in, and the messages would end with a, an announcer going, call next month for a new message. It isn't like today where you could just have it randomized and you get whoever you get. It could be all of them. Anyway, so we did this. And that was the only announcements we had done. Science fiction conventions and Starlog. So when the phone line opened, so many people were calling the phone system, and everything was AT&T back then. They were the phone company. They could not process all of the calls coming in. They couldn't give busy signals to that many phone calls. And it literally shut down the phone, the 800 system for the state of Illinois. The system could not handle it. AT&T called us and wanted us to stop this immediately. And we said, no, we didn't want to. We were going to keep going. And they said, well, in that case, we had to do three things. We had to increase the number of phone lines. Okay, that was no problem. Called up our phone company and say, you know, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but, you know, add more lines. They were happy to take our money and have more lines. Um, We had to cease all advertising. That was easy. We had done no advertising. We had no plans for any advertising. It was easy to stop. And AT&T wanted us to publicly apologize for the disruption. There it is. There it is. So willing to do that. You know, my brain was going, please don't throw me in that briar patch. Um, And we issued, because we'd done no press releases about this. We had just done the stuff I told you about. But now we issued a press release because we had to publicly apologize, saying, Oh, we're sorry there are so many fans of Star Wars who are so excited to hear what's going to be in the next Star Wars movie coming out in five months that AT&T couldn't handle it. We apologize for the disruption and, you know, it's but it's okay. There's now more phone lines. Everything's back to normal and everyone could call. And so now we're getting this huge influx of press from people who think it's funny that all these Star Wars fans were calling. Much more publicity than we could have ever gotten for the system. And the system was up and running. And basically, you know, it's not digital. It's all tape. It's all... And I I don't know how long ago it was now, maybe eight years ago, something like that, I was cleaning out my office and I found an old rack of uh, cassette tapes. And one of them was a set of, one of them had all of the messages. And I asked a sound guy friend of mine if he could clean up the tape because I was afraid to even play it. It was a, you know, 35-year-old cassette tape. Um, So he took it and digitized it and cleaned it up. And I just posted it as an attachment. You know, we converted it to, I guess, MP3 files. And I posted an attachment to my Facebook page telling this story. And it went viral. It got, you know, my friends were... Uh, you know, reposting it. Their people they knew were reposting it, were sharing it. And uh, Entertainment Tonight, not Entertainment Tonight, Entertainment Weekly picked it up and ran an article on it. And Lucasfilm 
one of the people Lucasfilm contacted me and said they didn't have a copy of it. And, you know, would I give them a copy of it? And I was like, sure. I mean, first, they could have just taken it anyway. But, <laughs> um, you know, because it was, it was on Facebook. Anyone could have downloaded uh, you know, yeah. it. Uh, but I said, sure, and I got it to them. Um, and, you know, now a number of people have reposted them to YouTube. So you can find them on YouTube. And my old, and my old friend and sometime assistant at Lucasfilm, Mark Marshall, turned out to have a copy of the outtakes from Mark and Carrie and James Earl Jones. And so we got those digitized, and I posted those as well. And you can find them now on YouTube. I need to find those ones because I, I I got the other ones. I did not find the outtakes though, and get a chance to listen to those. But yeah. I did listen to the other ones, and I wanted to know because, like I said, I had heard through the grapevine that these were a form of lost media. And like I said, I've been on a kick recently with like that stuff, and it just so happened to coincide with a recording discussion so i was like i can ask stuff i can get an actual answer so thank you for that yeah they're all they're all up on on youtube i did not put them there so i can't <laughs> you know i i posted basically i posted them to my facebook page and other people have moved them all over all over the place but they're all they're a lot of fun it's really interesting hearing people uh hearing the three of them as as they go through it and you know they were they were all reading them cold because you know they weren't they were expecting to loop their lines from uh, Empire, uh, not on the they weren't there the same day of course but you know we would just start the day when they were recording with can you do these for us? Yeah, well you know we'll we'll put a little sample of it here, but there's there's nothing quite like listening to the, the process of James Earl Jones uh, reading some script he hasn't heard before. It's pretty, it's real funny stuff. The thing is you forget that that isn't James voice. It's, you know, it's kind of his voice, but it is an additional layer he puts on for Darth Vader. So there's a lot of him working up to getting the Darth Vader version of his voice which is a little bit deeper and a little bit more tremulous when he's going through it. So you hear a lot of that as he's working up to that. And it's the first thing they were recording that day in all, in all three cases. So, so that's part of what makes it interesting. You hear the actual work that goes into it. We voice later when she says speed. <clears throat> we are going? Yeah. Okay, this is 800 message, uh, Darth Vader. Take one. They managed... Mm, repeating. They managed to rescue the princess. Nope. They managed to rescue the princess and to destroy the... De okay, take two. They managed to rescue the princess and to destroy the... De take they... They managed to rescue the princess. I'll walk around They managed to rescue the princess and to destroy the Death Star. But this time, the rebels won't be so lucky. The power of the Death Star was insignificant compared to the power of the Force. And with Obi-Wan Kenobi gone, I am the master. See it. Hmm. Do you want to just pick up at the end? I'll do it all over again. We, we can just pick up the last part. No, I'll do it all over again. Joe, you, you've been hanging out. You got any questions for Craig? Yeah. Uh, one thing, too, is you're, you were in that time where the holiday special came out. Oh, God. So the one thing I'd like to know. You stole this from me. Is Well, I'm sorry, Zach, but had to be said. Um, is what, what were your feelings on the holiday special? Well... You, you know, again, you have to remember the times. Today, this is unknown. Back in the late, mid to late 70s into the 80s, specials of that type, variety specials, were very common. We only had the networks and a few local stations. And the networks 
we're always doing these kind of variety specials. They're usually time tied to a holiday, the you know Christmas special, the Easter special, Valentine's Day, um, or there'd be a Bob Hope special every year, that sort of thing. And they were all terrible. They, they, were, you know, they were all hastily written. They were all, you know, a few musical numbers and a lot of dopey comedy routines. And they were done to because specials would get numbers and you would have the people who were starring in shows on your network and you would use it to plug the shows on your network so that you could help boost their ratings. So that was all very common. Um, and none of them were wonderful. The, you know, the network contacted us and I was not directly involved. It was not one of my projects. Um, but I was Charlie and George were both very much involved with it and made the decision. And it was part of the, we want to make another Star Wars movie, which eventually would be called Empire Strikes Back. And we want the public to keep Star Wars in mind. Remember, sequels, not a big thing back then. So it was doing all kinds of stuff. That's why the characters, the actors as their characters were doing appearances on variety shows. It's part of why we did R2 and 3PO on Sesame Street. It's keeping Star Wars in people's minds. The network wanted to do a Star Wars special? Great. We're all in favor of it. They hired the writers. It's their show. They hired the producers. They hired the director. They hired the writers. These were not Star Wars guys. These were not science fiction fans. This was, you know, Bruce Valanche and Lenny Rips and various people who were writing variety shows, regular variety shows, the Donnie and Marie show and the Carol Burnett show. And they were the people who wrote all of the network specials. They came to it with with an attitude. Now, I didn't talk to them about it at the time, but they came to it with the attitude of, we're going to write our stuff and we'll put this science fiction shit in it. <laughs> um, you know, and they were writing that kind of material for the actors who were on that network. You know, that's why it's B. Arthur, you know, running the cantina. Um, and as, as variety specials of the 70s go, it's actually kind of average in quality. Today, you look at it and go, it's terrible. Well, they were all terrible. And the biggest disappointment everybody had in the audience, and we had, is they wanted Star Wars. And what they got was Star Wars flavored Jello. <laughs> You know, it, it, it wasn't a really nice, rich chocolate cake. It was Jello, And it was originally going to be a one-hour special. It was going to be the Wookiee Planet stuff, which the whole thing with the Wookiee Planet and them only speaking Wookiee, or whatever the actual name is for... Shrewook. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Uh, I knew you, some, one of you would know. Um <laughs> That was George's idea. He didn't write the material, but he wanted a thing in the Wookiee planet, and he wanted it to be all in the Wookiee language. Um, and the, the animated Boba Fett stuff was part of the original hour. But the network was getting more and more excited about doing star, having Star Wars on their network. So they came back and said, can we do a 90-minute special? You're like, okay. Can we do a two-hour special? Okay. And they would go out and they would write more material. We didn't have approval. No one came to us and said, is this okay? We only had approval of, is this on model for the characters, basically? The characters couldn't do stuff that the characters wouldn't do. Same thing happened with Sesame Street. 
Um, that was my project. I was producer for Lucasfilm on that. And the Sesame Street guys wrote those segments and they would send them to us and I would approve them or give them notes on what 3PO or R2 could or couldn't do within that material. And the same thing, you know, for the holiday special. It's, it's more, it's more of a disappointment if, because some people I know got the idea it was going to be like a TV movie version of Star Wars, and that was never going to be what it was. Well, I mean, but I, but what we really want to know is like, do you remember a particularly wild day at work where you had to deal with some holiday special nonsense? Like, what stands out when you look back at it that you actually had to deal with personally? Well, well, I, you know, I got, I read all the drafts of the script. I was, I was in the loop, but it again, it wasn't my project. I was not. I had no input to it. I never went to the set. Are you, are you like are you were you were you tasked to write about it and promote it? No, no, because that was all the no. network. We okay. we didn't we didn't promote it. Okay. Uh, Mickey Herman was the production executive. I don't remember what her exact title was, but she was the one there making sure everything was going and getting all the stuff, the Star Wars stuff that needed to be in it and coordinating it. Um, but we, you know. So we were just, I was reading it. I didn't think the material was very good, but I had no say. And, you know, and the network would have said, what do I know? Um, and, you know, I didn't know. I'm not a TV executive. I didn't do holiday or, uh, you know, holiday specials. That wasn't my thing. So I had, I had absolutely no input. I, I mean, and I'm not saying that because, oh, my God, please don't tar me with this brush. It was... It just wasn't the case for me to have any involvement. And like I said, it's not it's not good. I'm not trying to defend it. It's just not as terrible comparatively. I will tell you that there is a documentary, a really good, because I've seen it, documentary about the making of the holiday special coming out. It, it's been at one film festival. I think it was at... Um, South by Southwest earlier this year, and it's coming out in a, at a film festival in L.A. later this year, and they're looking for distribution on it. But I've seen it, and it's actually really well done. It's very – they got a lot of people interviewed. I'm, I'm, I'm in it, so I'll, I'll – you know, truth in advertising. No, um, but, I mean, but even despite my being in it, I think it's really well done and gives you a really good picture of it. Well, Craig, I, I, and I hear Zach wanted to chime in there. I just want to point out, you know, in the, amongst us, it's, pro, it's probably about 50-50 in support versus against the holiday special. And just so you know, the level of degenerate nerds you're dealing with, I actually recently helped organize what I'm in, in what I understand to be the first uh, reunion of Nelvana employees who worked on the holiday special that's happening in Toronto on August 5th. So that's we're going to have a nice panel of Nelvana reunion on August 5th. And the stuff they did is great. Yeah. You know, that that animated segment is actually really good. I feel robbed because that was my next question was the holiday special. I, I was going to save it to the end because how do you, how do you top the holiday special? No, that was very enlightening. Thank you, Craig. Um, and that documentary, by the way, is disturbance in the force. Yeah. It should be. Very much looking forward to that when it debuts. It should be a disturbance. Wherever it does. <laughs> yes. Big one. Um, so here's a question I have for you, Craig, is that what's your favorite piece of star Wars media since you departed being part of, that that group of helping form how fans look at Star Wars, whether it be in the last five years or heck before the prequels came out. Okay, um, boy, there's been an awful lot of Star Wars out there, um, and you know, I'm my taste may not be the same as everybody's. Certainly. A lot, there's a lot of stuff that's clearly age divided. What did you see first? Because, you know, I'm, obviously I'm a trilogy guy, the original trilogy guy, and I really didn't like the prequels. But I know people who started with the prequels, they were, you know, 
kids and teenagers when the prequels came out love them. Not so much for me. I don't hate the sequels. I don't think they're wonderful. I think they've all got significant problems, but I don't think they're terrible. Um, I think they there wasn't enough thought into making them cohesive. There's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, the, like the whole casino planet sequence. It's like, okay, it's a perfectly fine set piece, although I would have liked gambling games that weren't the same as the ones you could play in Las Vegas today. Um, it's okay. It just doesn't make any sense in that movie. You got an hour and a half before the bad guys are going to be on us. Let's go over to this planet where maybe we can find someone who can help us. And then after all of that, we come back not having found them and just do what they should have done, which is, well, we'll take a chance and go over there and try to sneak in, you know, cut out that half hour of the movie that didn't add anything to the story. You know, it has, it has, the, the sequels have definite flaws, but I don't think they're terrible. I'm not a huge fan of Mandalorian. I think nothing happens in it. I think, I mean, I watched the first episodes and I thought, okay, this is interesting. This is cool, especially since the lead actor, you've started filming. You don't have your lead actor yet. and You've done the first three episodes. Um, so that's, that's an interesting choice. It, you know, it works, but... Um, but after a while, it's just like, okay, let's keep the story going. It just felt like nothing was happening. I really liked, I thought, I thought, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi was good. I loved the little girl as Princess Leia. I thought she was terrific. I thought you're going to, she's really playing. This is someone who's going to grow up to be Princess Leia. Uh, you could see the personality in that. But I thought that's, that series was good. I loved Andor. I thought Andor was terrific. Yeah, take that, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot of people who are like, oh, why aren't there any Jedis in there? Or a lot of my 501st friends or why are there no, you know, stormtroopers? <laughs> Stuff like that. And, you know, and I, and I get that. But it's this is a different piece of the Star Wars universe, and I thought it was really, really well done. Um, I'm looking forward to the next season of it. Um, a lot of the animated stuff has been good. Um, I'm hopeful for Ahsoka. I think that could be a really interesting show. What you know, I'm I'm kind of tired of the uh, Skywalker family saga. You know, there's so much in that universe. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should never see that again, but there's so much room in that universe. Let's explore it. Um, let's deal with other parts of it. And, you know, and I, and I have to say to, to Mark uh, Hamill, who I, I agree with him a lot about the sequels and the treatment of the character of Luke Skywalker. But one of Mark's complaints is that a Jedi would never abandon the universe and, and become a hermit. But every damn Jedi we've ever met from the original trilogy had gone off and become a hermit. Yeah. Obi-Wan is a hermit in the desert planet. Yoda is on the uh, hermit on a bog planet. You know, come on, every Jedi. That That's what Luke grew up with. You know, he's reverting to his training. I, 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 think, Mark, <laughs> I think on that one point, Mark was completely wrong. I mean, he knows Luke better than I do, but, but you know, I think he's wrong. Well, one of you has written Luke dialogue, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, well. Uh, um, I've written C-3PO dialogue. There you go. I've got a, a line I wrote is in uh, Empire Strikes Back. When we were doing Sesame Street, to we brought Tony in to be C-3PO. And he asked me, he said he was going to be looping um, 
the C-3PO dialogue and he, and he, of course, because you, there's no mouth movement for 3PO, you don't have to worry about lip flap with looping. He was looking for ad-libs to use as insults for R2-D2. <laughs> and I gave him, you know, I don't know, half a dozen I made up on the spot. And one is in Empire. He, when they're standing by the the doors to the ice cave and R2 goes rolling off and he calls him uh, a miserable little short circuit. That was one of my ad libs for Tony. So, you know, it nice. I'm not claiming it's the greatest line ever written, but Hey, I've got a line in empire strikes back. Few people can say that. Yeah. One of the things that they that they did when Disney took over uh, Lucas Films was they discontinued the expanded universe, or they made them legends. Is there one particular story that actually spoke to you? Because I, being a science fiction fan, you probably you still are a science fiction fan. Oh yeah. What What was one of the stories in one of the expanded universes that really like you said to yourself, "This could be a movie." Which would Which piece would that be? Well, uh, honestly, I've read almost none of it. Oh. I've read almost none of it. Um, now, I'll tell you, originally, when we were having Star Wars novels and Star Wars comics and stuff, George said, the movies are canon. All of the other stuff are like imaginary stories in DC comics. They're, they're wonderful stories. They are not canon. The fact that they became canon happened much later where suddenly it was like, yeah, okay, these are canon. But I think that was during the period George was not planning to make any more movies. And then suddenly, I don't know who it was, if it was Disney. I had thought that George was the one who decided they weren't canon. Um, but I may be wrong on that. I don't, I don't really know. Um, but that, was, that had been my impression. Um, Joe, but, Joe, can you, Joe, can you believe that Craig hasn't played Shadows of the Empire on N sixty four? That is just outrageous. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, you know, um, I, oh man, there's so many, there's so many places, there's so many places we could take this. Um, we want to be respectful of your time here. I just, I think the 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 big thing for me is like people need to sort of understand that uh, you know. Craig played a pivotal role in in the sort of the the starting engines of of this phenomenon that has carried on crazily to this day. You know, I I recently had the privilege of doing an interview with Roger Christian, and like he's just another guy who like superficially you might think he played a small part in sort of the art 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 decoration and set decoration process of Star Wars, but you know he designed weapons that disney is still using to this day <laughs> like yeah. the carry like roger, like roger did a lot roger had a lot of input you know yeah Armin reynolds with his designs um they did a lot john barry but um but roger on specific pieces his you know they were more the broader scope roger did a lot of designing very specific pieces that have become iconic for yeah. star wars and people don't realize how how small that initial that initial team was on the original movie and you know that it was all done for some fraction of 10 million dollars and and you know and like you know we're we're still we're still talking about this today because of guys like you and we really appreciate every, everything you did and and thank you so much for uh giving us your time this evening but um you know i guess it, it, i just want to uh in a way to sort of wrap it up, it must be weird to having to talk about it so much because in the scheme of your career, which has you've worked on a ton of stuff that I, we'd love to talk to you about, but we're going to only keep you for an hour here. But when you look back on your sort of couple years with Star Wars, what's what stands out to you the most in retrospect as like sort of the the sort of the high point of, of that that short phase of your career? Oh, you know, it was amazing. I was a kid in a candy store. I was a science fiction fan who was suddenly working on this movie and you know when i started it was it was a big deal to me and of course a big deal to all of us working on it but no one knew 
no one had the slightest idea of what it was going to become. It was just really exciting to be working. I, I mean, I was I had just graduated from college. This was really my first job. Um, you know, if they had no money, if they had money, they would have hired someone who had experience, you know. Um, <laughs> but it was it was just amazing. I was in this world with rockets and and aliens and and you know spaceships and all this kind of stuff and that was just super cool i was working on a movie set i had no connection to the movie industry had no expectation of ever working in the movie industry i just found myself there and i've stayed there for the next 40 some years um it's it's just been amazing i mean i've made tremendously great friends I continue to work with a number of them from Star Wars. I continue to be friends with them. Um, you know, Gary Kurtz was a, a close friend. I worked with Gary uh, throughout the rest of his life on all of his projects. And I'm, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm working on a, a, new, a new book, a biography of Gary Kurtz. I just had lunch with his... Uh, his wife and daughter, his first wife and his daughter, eldest daughter, uh, uh, yesterday, um, to uh, towards that end. Um, and there's just so much of my life that comes from having been involved with Star Wars, and I'm you know always thankful for that opportunity that I had. Thank you so much, Craig. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's an honor. Thank you for your insights. There are a couple of tidbits in what you've said that I've never heard before. So it's always, it's for Star Wars, new items of information are always fun little gems to find. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, I'm, I am always happy to do it. Happy to talk to you guys. And I, I will plug my book again by saying Star Wars Memories, which is available on Amazon and other places. But one of the points of it is it's all stuff you haven't heard before. I, I knew there was no reason to tell people again how we made the lightsabers work or the X-Wings fly. That's been covered to death. It's all, this is all stuff that isn't well known. And um, I'm, I'm very, I've been very blessed with um, surprisingly positive reviews of, of the book. It's like 70% five stars on Amazon. And um, the biggest complaint is the photos aren't high quality. And that's because the photos are there as illustrations. It's not a photo book. So they're not super high res uh, photos. But um, I, th I think if you, if, and when you read the book, and I hope you will, you'll find a lot of stuff you haven't heard before about the making of Star Wars and Empire. All right. With that being said, so concludes this episode of Knights of Vader, a Star Wars podcast. Check out the Facebook group, type in Knights of Vader into Facebook and you will find us there waiting for you. Instagram at KOV podcast. Harass Chris about all sorts of nerdy Star Wars knowledge. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify, whichever platform you perform, uh, prefer. It is certainly appreciated. Thank you to N Inspiriority Complex for providing our theme song. Check out the show notes to hear more from them. But when you're not listening to this podcast or reading Craig's new book, you can check out Zenger on the what podcast, Zenger? Uh, that would be the Zingness Podcast, where we talk about pop culture every episode. Nerdy pop culture every episode. There we go. And Joe, when you are not stealing my questions for our guest, what are you up to? Well, you can listen to me and Corey on the Wheel of Convo. Uh, we're taking a short little break, but we're redoing the wheel, and we're going to be coming right back to you. More wheel, more fun. And last but not least, Chris, beyond the Nelvon Animators Convention reuniting, what are you up to? All right. Well, you know, I'm just uh, I'm just living my best uh, Star Wars nerd life lately. You can go check out my interview with Roger Christian on the Vintage Rebellion podcast. And, uh, you know, we're just hanging out here with Craig Miller. What an awesome time we've had. Go get Craig's book. And if you're lucky enough to be at San Diego Comic-Con, track him down. Craig, what are you doing at San Diego Comic-Con? You're still here. Yeah, I'm uh, 
I'm going to have, for the first time, I'm going to have a table at Comic-Con. I've been going since 74. Um, we're going to be in um, K-13 in sm the small press pavilion uh, with my books, Star Wars Memories. And I'm also selling off. I've got a bunch of old crew patches from Star Wars and Empire, uh, patches, stickers, a bunch of other stuff, unused T-shirt transfers, you know, just stuff to fill the table out, but fun stuff. And I'm doing two panels. I'm doing um, Friday at 10, I'm doing a panel on animated TV series of the 80s, where it's a bunch of people who wrote they, all the different animated shows of the 80s, um, talking about doing that. And then I'm doing at noon on Friday, I'm doing a talk and slideshow called Star Wars Memories. Some of the stories from my book with photos and stuff. Good night, but not goodbye. And as always, may the force be with you.